This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with Ari Berman about voting rights victories. Also, our man Dave Zirin is in Rio for the Olympics and for the politics around the Olympics. First up, a story about sexual harassment. For that, we turn to Katha Pollitt poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine. Her most recent book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Connecticut. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we've had two high-profile cases of sexual harassment in the news lately. First, Roger Ailes, founder and CEO of Fox News, and at Yale University, a philosophy professor named Thomas Poge. Uh, let's start with Roger Ailes. It's kind of amazing that the most powerful man in Republican media over the last two decades would be forced to resign by women who work for him. How did that happen? Gretchen Carlson um, said you've been sexually harassing me. And it was very interesting. The theme of my column is you, if you want to be taken seriously, ladies, you should be sure that you're not the only person <laughs> bringing this charge. Because the first thing that happens is people say, oh yeah, she's just envious, jealous, wants money, uh, needs attention. And that's what happened with Gretchen Carlson, that um, her colleagues at first did not support her. Um, Greta Van Sisteren told People magazine the charges did not have, quote, a ring of truth, which doesn't that sound like Lord of the Rings or something? <laughs> okay. We're searching for the ring of truth. Um, she said, and then I think this is so incredible, Greta, Greta Van Sisteren said, Ailes had never harassed her, and she'd been alone with him in a room many times. Um, so it's sort of like if you only harass some people, it doesn't count. No one should believe you be, unless they themselves have been harassed. So Greta Van Sisteren told her, said that, told people that uh, 
Carlson might be angry that her show hadn't been renewed or whatever. But then what happened was that other women came forward with similar accounts, um, over 20, and that included the network's biggest star, Megyn Kelly, uh, the world-famous Megyn Kelly. <laughs> and that sort of changed, that changed the narrative. And I think that's just so fascinating. And the same thing happened with uh, the case of Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Remember him, that uh, he was accused by a hotel housekeeper of having raped her. And uh, at first, you know, people were very, very um, eager to dismiss the story. Until sometime later, uh, French women of his own social class accused him of sundry offenses. And finally, he was put on trial for consorting with prostitutes at an orgy paid for by uh, some wealthy people. And his defense was, how could I know that they were prostitutes? They were naked. (laughs) He got off on those charges. But now I think for his sins, he is uh, trying to improve the economy of Serbia. Uh, (laughs) That's a big job. (laughs) That is a very big job. So at Fox News, at Fox News, the complaint here is wrongful termination that Roger Ailes fired women who rejected his advances. Fox, they say, was a hostile workplace and their termination was, quote, retaliatory. This is uh, legal talk from the lawsuits. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Katha, we've gone almost three minutes without mentioning Donald Trump. Can we fix that now, please? It feels so strange. Something is missing. Uh, Donald Trump makes every event on Earth, uh, including my column, about himself. And it didn't take long for the Ailes story to uh, become a story about him. And he, he not only said his good friend Roger was a wonderful person and why are people say, why are these women saying these terrible things since he's always been so great to them. He was asked what Ivanka, his, his daughter, should do if she were sexually harassed. And he replied, quote, I would like to think she would find another career or find another company if that was the case. And then Eric Trump, who I mostly am aware of on Twitter because there's a photo of him with a dead cheetah and the tail of an elephant from uh, a trip to Africa that he made. So he's not not in my good books. Uh, He made matters worse. Ivanka is a strong, powerful woman. He said she wouldn't allow herself to be, you know, subjected to it. So we have Donald himself says that if Ivanka was harassed at work, she, instead of filing a complaint or a lawsuit, she should, she would find another career. And Eric went further and said, well, actually, this wouldn't happen to Ivanka because she's a strong person. I wonder if you have any comments on these two uh, responses. Well, it's just ridiculous. First of all, it's not so easy to find another job and you've put a lot of energy into getting the job you have. And maybe you love this job, except for that creep who's harassing you. And to say you should go find another job is to say any man who, well, we have to, I guess, be gender neutral here. Any person who is a harasser can control the life of their victim. And that's not right. They should stop harassing and their workplace should protect people from harassment. As for uh, Eric Trump, killer of many wild animals, it's ridiculous to say that a strong and powerful woman would not allow herself 
to be subjected to it. It's not about allowing yourself. It's about what people with power can do. Um, Gretchen Carlson was no weakling. Um, Megan Kelly was no weakling. Well, let's compare and contrast the horrible right-wing sexist world of Fox News with life inside the politically correct university. For example, Yale. There we have another sexual harassment complaint by another subordinate woman against a powerful man. In this case, it's an ethicist, something you would never say about Roger Ailes. Tell us about the ethicist in the Yale Philosophy Department and the complaints against him. Well, this is Thomas Paget, who is a professor of philosophy at Yale, and he is uh, what is called, although I didn't know this before, a global ethicist. So he specializes in problems of world poverty and uh, rich nations and poor nations and egalitarianism and all that sort of thing. And he was accused by one of his, his undergraduate students, although she made this charge after she graduated. And the worst events happened after she graduated, if they happened. And that was why Yale was able to dismiss her complaint. This Fernanda Lopez Aguilar accused him of sexually harassing her. How would you like to get this email from your professor? If you don't understand me, Fernanda, who will? Uh, <laughs> uh, he manipulated her into sharing a hotel room with him in Chile. He pressed his direction against her, etc., etc., etc. He denies all this, um, I should say. So Yale dismissed her complaint and offered her $2,000 in return for signing a confidentiality agreement. Wow. Yeah, I know, really. It turned out that other women had similar stories. We are yes. back to the other women. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to say. So all these women were young, they were pretty, and they were all uh, non-white. Um, and many were foreign. And they were from different universities. Then it turned out that Pogge had been accused of sexual harassment at Columbia where he had worked before being hired at Yale. So that brings into the story the idea of, like, well, should Yale have known? Did Yale know? Did people know? And uh, why didn't people know? Yale has refused to reopen the case, and Aguilar is now bringing a lawsuit against Yale under Title IX, saying they didn't take her seriously enough and didn't reckon with certain elements in her case. This has become a very big issue in the philosophy profession and in academia at large. I understand that hundreds of professors, including more than a dozen members of Yale's own philosophy department, including the chair of the Yale philosophy department, have signed an open letter to strongly condemn Pogay, but that doesn't seem to have influenced the Yale administration. The New York Times had a big piece on this where they interviewed Professor Pogge, and he told the Times, quote, I'm a non-hierarchical professor, close quote. Why exactly is that relevant to uh, charges of sexual harassment of students? Uh, I, I can't answer that question. It's a very funny thing to say, though, since sexual harassment is all about hierarchy. <laughs> And indeed, part of Ms. Lopez Aguilar's complaint is that she was supposed to get a postgraduate fellowship at the Global Justice Program that Poge ran at Yale. And after she rejected his advances, she did not get this position. So it's actually not exactly a non-hierarchical situation, is it? No, it is not. And, and you know, 
I think one thing that's important to stress here is that in these sexual harassment situations, it isn't just the victims of the sexual harassment who are the victims. For example, what is going to happen to Poge's female students now? They've worked with him. Maybe he's been really nice to them. He didn't sexually harass everybody if he sexually harassed anybody. I am trying not to, you know, try him before their trial, but uh, which there will never be. But his letters of recommendation are career poison now because anyone who reads them is going to say, oh, did he write this letter of recommendation because she was sleeping with him or, you know, that's that kind of thing. So what are these students supposed to do? They've invested years in studying with this man. All that is gone. This all began back in 2010 and 2011 when the original uh, complaint was filed and when Yale ran its investigation. That 2011 investigation by Yale did conclude they found insufficient evidence of sexual harassment, but they did find Professor Pogay guilty of one crime, misuse of Yale letterhead, and he received a formal reprimand in a letter in his file about that. Would you conclude that Yale protects its stationery more carefully than it protects its women students from sexual <laughs> harassment? That's, that's very funny, isn't it? Well, we've all got to be careful about what stationery we use when, I suppose. That's really hilarious. So where, where things stand now in the two cases we're talking about, Roger Ailes is leaving Fox News. You did mention he has a severance package of $40 million. But in exchange for that, he, he promised not to compete with them by founding a new right-wing network. So Roger Ailes is out. His career is over. Meanwhile, Professor Pogay has been cleared of charges at Yale, but as you say, he faces a new complaint which the Department of Education may investigate. My conclusion from all this is Fox News got rid of its top executive when he was accused of sexual harassment, but Yale kept its big-shot professor when he was accused. So much for political correctness on campus. That's a very good point. And here also we see the power of tenure. It's really hard to fire someone in a university. And what is your conclusion about these two cases when we put them together? My conclusion is that a woman's best chance of being believed is getting public support from other women. So sisterhood has, had better be powerful here. <laughs> sisterhood better be powerful. Read Katha's new column on sexual harassment at The Nation magazine and thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, John. Now it's time to talk with Ari Berman about some voting rights victories in court. Ari is senior contributing writer for The Nation and author of the indispensable book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. It's out in paperback this week. Ari Berman, welcome back. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Well, we've been talking to you here all year about the wave of voting rights restrictions that Republican-controlled states have put into law since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act three years ago. But the ACLU and other groups went to court, fought fiercely, and over the last two weeks, we finally had good news, a lot of good news. Please give us a quick rundown of, of what's happened. 
Yeah, so there were a remarkable string of victories. Uh, GOP-backed voting restrictions were struck down in six states in the span of two weeks, and there were major court victories in North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, Michigan, Kansas, and North Dakota. Let's start with North Carolina, which, as we've said here several times before, has kind of replaced Mississippi as the worst state, the state where racist restrictions on voting have been the most blatant. The Republicans there made the same argument they made everywhere else. New laws are necessary to prevent voter fraud. What did the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit say about these new laws in North Carolina? The North Carolina victory was the most significant of all of the decisions striking down GOP-backed voting restrictions because North Carolina passed the most sweeping voting restrictions in the country just a month after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. They not only required strict voter ID, but they cut back on early voting. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They eliminated pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds. They eliminated out-of-precinct voting. And they did all this just a month after the Supreme Court said that states like North Carolina, with a long history of discrimination, no longer have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. So the fact uh, that all of these uh, bad laws were overturned was really, really significant, and a bunch of really important electoral reforms were put back in place, like a week of early voting and same-day voter registration was really significant. But the opinion itself was, was really remarkable, because The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously said that North Carolina intentionally suppressed black voters, that Republicans there targeted African-Americans, in their words, with almost surgical precision. And that some of the evidence in the case, like the fact that they eliminated Sunday voting, which the state of North Carolina admitted was used overwhelmingly by African-American voters and voters in Democratic counties, that the evidence that things like Sunday voting were eliminated, was as close as a, quote, smoking gun as you were ever to find in modern times. So this was an unbelievable rebuke to what Republicans have been doing all across the country, especially in North Carolina. And they basically said this was not about voter fraud. This was about suppressing the votes of uh, voters of color who tend to vote for Democrats. That that, That is what this was always about. Now, we're especially interested in North Carolina in this election because it's been a swing state for the last couple of elections. It voted for Obama in 2008 after decades of Republican domination, and then it voted against Obama in 2012. Now the polls are painfully close in North Carolina. I think today it's something like Clinton 48 percent, Trump 47 percent. Do you think the appeals court decision is going to affect the voting totals in North Carolina when they're counted after November 8th? Well, here's what I think. I think it's going to make it easier for there to be a larger voter turnout because we know that hundreds of thousands of people, for example, used the first week of early voting, which was eliminated by the state of North Carolina. We know that 120,000 people used same-day voter registration, which was eliminated by North Carolina. We know that 200,000 registered voters did not have strict forms of government-issued ID and will now be able to vote. So I think we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of people who are able to vote that would not have been able to vote otherwise. And I think that's going to make an impact 
not just in the presidential race in North Carolina, but North Carolina has a very close governor's race. Remember Pat McCrory, the guy that signed HB2? Yes. Uh, he is up for re-election. He is facing a very competitive challenge from the Attorney General Roy Cooper, who's a Democrat. There's a close Senate race. Richard Burr's up for re-election. There are close races all throughout the state. And North Carolina is one of those states that has been a moderate swing state for a while on the local level and is now a swing state on the presidential level. But Republicans have controlled basically everything in that state. And now their control is slipping. And that's why the voter suppression efforts were so important to them. And that's why the fact that so many of these efforts have been overturned is such an important victory for voters there. And it's going to make all levels of of races more competitive. I've been asked by uh, anxious friends whether this is going to be appealed any further. And I believe the attorney general of North Carolina has announced he will not appeal this court decision. So I believe that means it's over for North Carolina. Have I got that right? No. So no. So what's happening is that even though the attorney general, who's the highest legal official in the in the state, is not supporting the appeal, North Carolina is appealing to the Supreme Court. Uh, and they're trying to get the Supreme Court uh, to overturn the Fourth Circuit's decision. Now, I think that's going to be unlikely because the Supreme Court, as everyone knows, is deadlocked four to four. And I think without five votes, it's unlikely this is going to be overturned with Justice Scalia no longer there. And I, I think this just crystallizes the importance of the Supreme Court, because I think if you had a Supreme Court uh, that was a 5-4 conservative majority, all of these uh, new voting restrictions that were overturned could have been reinstated. And I think on the flip side, if you had a 5-4 Supreme Court that had a center-left majority, then you would begin to see the Supreme Court rethink earlier decisions on voter ID laws, on gutting the Voting Rights Act, on felon disenfranchisement. Uh, The Supreme Court for many, many years has been viewed as the greatest obstacle to protecting voting rights, and instead it could be uh, one of the most important protectors of voting rights uh, if there was a 5-4 center-left majority instead of a 5-4 conservative majority or even a 4-4 deadlock court that can't do anything. And is it your understanding that the court will consider the North Carolina appeal before November 8th? I think that basically North Carolina is asking them to consider it as quickly as possible. And the Supreme Court can, can I mean, they can do a few different things, but more than likely they're just not going to have the votes to even hear the case. So Donald Trump would really like to win North Carolina. He would also like to win Wisconsin and Michigan. We heard Michael Moore on Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago predicting that Donald Trump will carry Wisconsin and Michigan, even though they've been reliable Democratic states in the past. The federal court decisions also covered voting rights restrictions in Wisconsin and Michigan. What exactly happened in those states? Well, I would like to have a pretty large wager with Michael Moore that Donald Trump will not win (laughs) Wisconsin or Michigan. Currently, Donald Trump is losing in Arizona and in Georgia. So if if he's, I don't believe that Trump is going to lose Arizona and Georgia, but if he's tied with Clinton or even behind in Arizona and Georgia, he's certainly not going to win Michigan and Wisconsin, which have been reliably Democratic states for multiple cycles now. Uh, But what happened in, first I'll start with Michigan because this was pretty simple. Republicans banned straight ticket voting 
which doesn't sound like a very big deal. However, uh, when you eliminate straight ticket voting, it leads to longer times to vote, which leads to longer lines at the polls. And we yeah. have data showing that African-American voters in Detroit, for example, were more likely to use straight ticket voting to vote straight Democrat, but that also those places had much longer lines. And if you added uh, even a few minutes to the voting process in a place like Detroit, that could mean that instead of waiting two hours, you could vote three hours. You Ugh. could wait three hours to have Ugh. to vote. So, uh, that, so that was struck down by the courts. And in Wisconsin, uh, a bunch of different things were struck down. Uh, Wisconsin, kind of like North Carolina, passed a lot of under-the-radar voting restrictions. They didn't just require strict voter ID, um, but they also, for example, uh, made it harder to cast absentee ballots. They eliminated early voting on nights and weekends when it's most convenient uh, to vote early. They they uh, added all these strict residency requirements for how long you have to live in the state to be able to vote. So all of those things were struck down. And then the voter ID law was basically softened. And they said that if you don't have strict forms of ID, you still have to be able to vote. And that uh, more IDs, like student IDs, for example, have to be uh, accepted. So the voter ID law is still in effect, unfortunately, in Wisconsin because an earlier circuit court decision upheld it. But it has since been subsequently softened. And other restrictions there have been struck down. And we have to talk about Ohio. Ohio is the absolutely crucial swing state. No Republican has ever won the presidency in recent history without carrying Ohio. What is the state of the new uh, voting restrictions in Ohio since the court acted? So some things in Ohio have been overturned. So, for example, Ohio, uh, a week of early voting and same-day voter registration in Ohio uh, during that week was reinstated, uh, which was really important. But there are other things that Ohio is doing that are, are still ongoing. For example, they are purging hundreds of thousands of people uh, from the voting rolls, and, and that has been initially upheld by the courts and is pending appeal. Uh, so there are still a number of legal battles uh, playing out in Ohio, which uh, by, by all estimates, remains probably the closest state in the country in the presidential race. So restrictions remain in Ohio. I understand that new restrictions on voting remain in many other states. Give us a rundown of where the biggest problems that remain can be found. For example, in Virginia, there's not only a new voter ID law, but uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe uh, planned to reinstate voting rights for 200,000 ex-offenders, uh, and that was uh, subsequently blocked by the Virginia Supreme Court by a 4-3 Republican majority. And so he's going to try to sign uh, reinstatement of uh, ex-offenders on an individual basis, but I think it's fair to say that tens of thousands of people who would have had the right to vote in Virginia will not have it now, and that could create um, a volatile situation. Uh, similar felon disenfranchisement laws were upheld in Iowa, meaning that uh, tens of thousands of people will not be able to vote there. Uh, either uh, Ohio, as I mentioned, has a, a voter purge. There's a bunch of voter ID laws that are still in effect in southern states like Alabama and Mississippi. Uh, even in, in states like Wisconsin, where things have been struck down, uh, the, the voter ID law is still in effect. So people are going to have to know that if they don't have ID, they're still able to vote. Uh, and I think that's really, really important that the word gets out here, because I think there could still be a lot of confusion uh, resulting from all of these changes. In North Carolina, for example, uh, where uh, 
a week of early voting was reinstated by the court, we're still seeing that local elections board, with which all have a Republican majority, because by in, in North Carolina, the governor gets to appoint a majority of all election commissioners. All of these local boards of elections are now ruling on how much early voting the county should have. And there have been Republican moves, for example, to eliminate voting on the Sunday before the election when black churches do souls to the polls, uh, voter mobilization drives to eliminate uh, voting on uh, college campuses, poll sites on college campuses. A lot of these efforts have been defeated, but this is the next wave of things. So we can't just think, oh, well, there have been all these court decisions to fight for voting rights over. That is definitely not the case. A lot of bad laws are still on the, the books, and even in states where there have been major victories, there are still new attempts to try to suppress the vote. There are also some new laws that are good, that represent kind of the new frontier of voting rights in America. I know you're in Portland, Oregon today. What, what's Oregon doing and what does it bode for the future of voting rights in America? Oregon became the first state to pass what is known as automatic voter registration, which is that when you go to the DMV to either uh, get a, a driver's license or a state ID or update your information, you are then automatically registered to vote. Uh, the state sends you uh, a, a voter registration information, and then they will send you an absentee ballot because Oregon is a vote-by-mail state. Uh, and, and this is expected to add uh, up to 300,000 new voters to the rolls uh, this year, and there has been a, a huge jump, uh, about a five-fold increase in the number of new people registered each month. So it's working very well here, uh, and it's becoming a model for the rest of the country. Uh, similar automatic registration laws have been adopted in places like California, Vermont, Connecticut, and even West Virginia. So I think this is an example of how to try to get more people involved in the political process, uh, as opposed to what they're doing in states like Texas and North Carolina, which is trying to figure out uh, how to suppress as many votes as possible. So it's really interesting to be in a state uh, that is thinking about voting rights in a completely different way and, and actually having some success in spreading that model to other places in the country. Ari Berman, readamitthenation.com. Ari, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it. Now for our Olympics update, we turn, of course, to Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation. He's the author of eight books on the politics of sports, most recently Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the fight for democracy. He's a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now!, And he also hosts his own weekly podcast, Edge of Sports Radio, on Panoply. We reached him today in Rio. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, tell us, what is it like to be in Rio now? Well, a lot of troops. Let's start there. There's over 85,000 military on the ground here in a city of about 6.5 million people. And so this is a heavily fortified, heavily militarized area at the moment. Um, other things that really spring to mind is there have been a series of protests since I've been here calling for the ouster of Brazilian President, Mich- I should say interim president, Michelle Temer, um, who is the interim president since the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff. People holding up signs that say, for uh, Temer, which means out with Temer in Portuguese. This was under the dictates of the IOC, saying that anybody who held up political signs needed to be removed from Olympic venues. But a Brazilian judge just said that anybody who removed anyone for peaceably protesting could be fined up to 10,000 reais. 
which is a it's about a couple of thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's a very politicized Olympics. It's an Olympics where a lot of folks are on edge. But I'd be uh, lying if I told you that there also wasn't some local joy here. Um, Rafaela da Silva, who uh, is from the very well-known favela in Rio, uh, the City of God, uh, she won Brazil's first gold in judo. The Brazilian basketball team at an event I was at upset Spain in basketball by one point with a basket with just five seconds to go. So it's not like there's any shortage of that kind of excitement here, certainly. But there also is also definitely a feeling of unease. Well, the most uplifting news we here in the States have read about the Olympics and seen from the Olympics on TV is that first ever all-refugee Olympic team, 10 athletes who marched in the opening ceremonies on Friday under no nation's flag. Instead, they carried the Olympic flag. The 10, of course, represent the massive refugee population around the world, estimated at something like 60 million people. What did you think of the refugee team? Well, on the one hand, of course, I mean, it's an incredible triumph of the human spirit to see folks from places like Syria, South Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, all of whom have come to the Olympics and have been able to pursue their athletic dreams despite living in horrific hardship. On the other hand, you know, there's a part of it that is a little bit unsettling because the Olympics here in Rio have caused an internal refugee crisis. I mean, they're not called refugees according to the strict definitions of the United Nations. They're called IDPs or internally displaced people. And the numbers of people in Rio who've been internally displaced by the Olympics, it numbers as high as 77,000. And one of the places where people was dis were displaced is a community called Vila Autodromo that is literally a two-minute walk from where a lot of these events are taking place. I went by Vila Autodromo today. There are only 20 families left, and there were just moved into new housing that this is an area that once had seven, six, 700 families and what the 20 families who are there that are left, what they've done for people, hoping that people who are going to the Olympics see it, is that they've created what they called a, a museum of the removals. Mm. So people can go and actually look at photo exhibits and learn the history of the struggle to stay at Vila Todromo over the last 15 years. And it's a uh, I mean, that to me is also a testament to the human spirit, yet it's one that doesn't put the Olympics in the best light. And so anybody listening to this who's either in or coming to Rio, take a right turn instead of a left turn when you get off of the Brazilian rapid transit bus line and go to Vila Todromo and see the exhibit that they've set up uh, to commemorate their own resilience, the 20 families that are left started with 650 to 700. Now it's just two dozen, but they want people to not have their memory be sacrificed along with the Olympics in the words of one person who I spoke to today. The issue of internally display, displaced people uh, has become an increasingly significant political issue in the cities considering hosting future Olympics. Seems to me like it's becoming more and more of a problem of the Olympics organization to face this for the next set of Olympics. Uh, it certainly does. There's already been people displaced for Tokyo for 2020. And there's, this is a, an issue that's been brought up by 
cities as disparate as Oslo and Krakow and Boston for reasons why they don't want to host the Olympics. And I know it's being discussed in Los Angeles, which is the favorite to win the bid for 2024. And the issue isn't like in some places like Beijing or here in Rio, where people are necessarily removed at gunpoint from their homes. The issue is also just when the Olympics come in, particularly in the post 9-11 era, although displacement did exist before 9-11, there are these demands for security perimeters around the Olympic venues that people have to sacrifice their homes in order to make these security perimeters exist. And the thing that people did in Vila Tojomo is they said, look, we understand that our community is mere yards from the Olympic place. So what they did was they enlisted a group of people from the university, urban planners, and they came up with their own plan where their community would be actually integrated into the Olympic organizing and the Olympic construction. And this plan was recognized internationally. It actually won awards um, in terms of urban planning and integration. Yet it wasn't good enough for the International Olympic Committee, and it wasn't good enough uh, for the local government in Rio for the simple reason that, they, it, that the displacement comes with benefits for the powers that be in these cities, and that those benefits are about real estate, new homes, gentrification, as we call it in the United States. So it's not good enough to just do no harm. People actually want to profit from the harm that the Olympics bring. Well, I want to go back to the uh, all-refugee Olympic team for a minute. There was an amazing uh, person who spoke, a a woman uh, from Syria, Yusra Mardini. Am I pronouncing her name right? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I I don't speak Syrian, but that's how I'd pronounce it. (laughs) She's the one who swam for three and a half hours guiding a small boat with 20 refugees. She's 18 years old. Seemed to me like she was talking to Donald Trump when she said refugees are normal humans that had to leave their homelands, not because they wanted to, not because they wanted to be refugees or run away or to have drama in their lives. They had to leave, close quote. Doesn't that seem to you like Donald Trump should be listening? Oh, I really wish she was only talking to Donald Trump. Of course, the, the, you know, the anti-refugee wave is being picked up by politicians across Europe. Um, and it's what's so noxious to me about it, as you said it early on, about you know, if there are over 60 million refugees in the world right now. That's the most since World War II. And most of these refugees are the, the, are the result of wars that were supported by Western Europe and the United States. And so for, I mean, our historical memory is so short in this country and in this world. So this idea that we're shocked and horrified that we might have some moral or political responsibility to the refugees that have been created by the very bombs that our tax dollars have paid for. I mean, it's just one of the things that Donald Trump is proudly blind to, but um, he's certainly not alone. Let's talk for a minute about the American athletes in Rio. I know some of the best athletes, especially in golf, refuse to go because of health concerns. Other American teams have special security arrangements, their own yachts in the harbor where they have special security. Uh, watching TV here in America, of course, we see only the, the American uh, champions on the screen. I imagine in Rio you get a slightly different perspective on the American presence. Well, a much different perspective, and the number one is that, you know, it's winter here, and so it's very low mosquito season, and so all the Zika fears are 
are greeted here as somewhat, you know, curious. Frankly, the Zika risk is much higher right now in southern Florida than it is in Rio, despite everything we've been hearing about Zika in the Olympics over the last several months. Maybe if um, our country's eye had been more on the ball, Congress wouldn't have left session without funding Zika prevention in Florida um, and in the United States instead of people saying, oh, we should move the Olympics from Rio. Look, there are a million, and there have been a million reasons to move the Olympics from Rio. Zika was always a bizarre one from my perspective for simply because it's winter here and it's just not mosquito season. As far as the U.S. men's and women's basketball teams staying at a yacht offshore instead of staying at the Olympic Village, I mean, and, and golfers being the primary people and tennis players who haven't come because of Zika, I mean, that just, to me, just is such a reflection of our society. I mean, there's there the, the gap between haves and have-nots is not limited to our cities and our countries. It's, it's something that exists inside the Olympic movement as well. Anything else you'd like to talk about? The only other thing that that I'd like to say is that I think one of the one of the things that I'm very concerned about is that the discussion about the problems with the Olympics in Rio is almost invariably a discussion about the dysfunction in Brazil's government when the problem is really about how the International Olympic Committee does business. And when we make it a discussion about Brazil and Rio, what we do is we mislead people as to the root of the problem, which is really about the demands of the IOC as an unaccountable, undemocratic cartel. And that's such an important discussion because if this is just a Rio discussion, then it doesn't really have anything to do with Tokyo or Los Angeles or anywhere else. But if we understand this as a problem with mega events, then, well, this, then it also this becomes a very, very relevant story to the potential future host cities. Dave Zirin, listen to him on Edge of Sports Radio on Panoply. Read him at thenation.com. Dave, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.